Church, and it is my privilege to be preaching this morning, and actually the next three Sunday mornings, from a book that I know you have all been wondering when a pastor was going to preach from this book. I know you've just been waiting in anticipation for the day that the preacher said to turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. So if you would, find your way there to the book of Haggai now. Find Matthew, go back just a couple books, a few pages, you'll find it there. And the Lord's timing is as perfect as ever because I originally, when I was set to preach, it was going to be towards the end of January. I was going to preach something else on this day, but after we rearranged everything, I'm going to be preaching today in the next three weeks. And as I was studying this week, I realized the Lord's providence for having me in this passage. I never would have thought to myself as I was planning this, you know, the perfect text for January 1st is Haggai. I just had read through it and wanted to preach through this short book with a few weeks that I had, but I never would have thought that this was the perfect book for the beginning of the new year, but I found as I studied that it actually is the perfect book for us to be in as we begin the new year. Because Haggai challenges the people of Israel with something that is fitting for all of us to think about on this first day of January. You see, the Jews, they had returned from exile, they had grown preoccupied, with the things that they wanted to do, the things that would benefit them to the neglect of their religious duties. The Jews, they didn't have enough time in the day to attend to the things of Yahweh, and so they continued to prioritize their own households while the house of Yahweh was left in ruins. And so Haggai enters this scene with a challenge of the people to consider the ways that they have been living. He calls them to make time for Yahweh by prioritizing Him above themselves. And this is a challenge to all of us who make the excuse that we don't have time to attend to spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, Scripture, memory, prayer, or the acts of service to Him and evangelism and discipleship. And in the Lord's kind providence, He is having us consider our ways this morning as we begin the new year. So if you steward every aspect of your life perfectly, your time and your energy and your finances, if you steward all of those perfectly well, well then you don't really need this sermon. But if you are like the rest of us, and you need some encouragement to align your priorities with the priorities of Scripture, well, this little book of Haggai that is often overlooked has the perfect message for you. We're going to as Haggai commanded and challenged the Israelites, realign, recalibrate our priorities. Most of us, we're pretty good at keeping the chronology of Israelite history straight. We've got most of that in mind right up until the end of Kings, maybe the end of Chronicles. But several decades have passed between then and now when Haggai begins his book, and I want to spend just a couple of minutes filling in some of the white spaces of that history that we often, most of us, are unfamiliar with. And so I'm going to just give you a brief overview, fill in some of those white spaces on the history that's going on. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar marched upon Jerusalem and slaughtered without mercy the young and the old, the male and the female, leaving the city and the temple desolate. Tore down all the walls, tore down the temple, took everything of value. After Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and leveled it, he reigned for another 24 years, and he died in 652, 562 pardon me, B.C. He had basically conquered the known world, defeating the superpowers of Assyria and Egypt. His long and glorious reign was followed up then by a few short reigns of less competent, wicked men. And this tumultuous time set the stage for a man named Nabonidus to reign. But Nabonidus, after he took the rule, he spent a lot of time elsewhere actually trying to build a temple somewhere else in his mother's town. But Nabonidus, he left Belshazzar. You might recognize him from the book of Daniel, the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar, his son in charge in Babylon while he was elsewhere. Nabonidus was absent from Babylon much of the time and ended up angering the religious leaders trying to import other gods to the point that much of the city was really just unhappy with him. 
Thus, when Cyrus marched on Babylon, he is said to have been a liberator of the city more than a conqueror. There was some opposition to him, but it was little. Cyrus entered the city of Babylon and conquered it with little opposition in 539. And Cyrus, trying to appease many people and many gods, he was very polytheistic, trying to appease many gods, he allowed the many people who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and imported into Babylon, exiled in Babylon, he allowed them to return to their lands with their gods. The Cyrus Cylinder, it's a stone that's in the museum in London right now, it records Cyrus's undertakings to conquer Babylon and liberate the captive people and gods. And one of the quotes from that says this, I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, that includes Judah, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time. The images, or the gods, which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. Furthermore, I resettled upon the command of Marduk, the god of Babylon, the great lord, all the gods of Sumer and Akkad, whom Nabonidus had brought into Babylon, to the anger of the lord of the gods. I returned them unharmed in their former chapels, the places which make them happy. So Cyrus was attempting to make all the gods happy, all the peoples happy. And it was a good political tactic as well, because he's trying to make all the new people of his realm happy. And if you conquer Babylon and you take all the people who had been exiled and you spread them back across the countries that they were exiled from, they'll speak well of Cyrus to all the other people that he's about to come and rule over. Ezra records Cyrus's decree for the Jews at the end of 2 Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra. 2 Chronicles 36.23 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may the Lord His God be with Him. Let Him go up. So this decree, this general decree went out for all the gods to be returned, all the peoples to be returned, and there's a specific one recorded here for the Jews. Thus the Jews returned to Judah with haste to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple paid for by the state. But not long after this, Cyrus was killed in battle in 530 B.C., just a few years after the Jews had returned. His son, Cambyses, succeeded him. But his son, Cambyses, just a short time later, injured himself with his own knife on the way back home from battle, and he died. And a prominent military leader who served Cyrus and Cambyses assumed the throne in 522. His name was Darius. Darius continued the religious tolerance of his predecessor, and he remained very friendly to those little regions who had not yet rebelled against him, who Cyrus had sent back out from Babylon. It is in this second year of the reign of Darius, the reign that Haggai brings this word of Yahweh to the Jews. But what has been happening in Judah for the last 15 years? Well, for that, we can look to our Bibles to the book of Ezra, if you wouldn't mind taking your Bibles and turning back to the book of Ezra just to orient ourselves to what was happening in Jerusalem at this time. It gives us some insight as to what the Jews are doing at the time of Haggai, why they're doing what they're doing. At the beginning of chapter 3, we are told that Zerubbabel and Jeshua, otherwise known as Joshua and Haggai, different spelling, same guy, rebuilt the altar and reinstituted temple sacrifice in accordance with the law of Moses. This is seven months into the return, but the temple foundation was not yet laid, it says in verse 6. So let's pick it up in verse 8. Ezra 3, verse 8. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and, the, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning 
together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all those who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his son and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. If you want to know where all the animosity comes from between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's right here. Those who were brought there by Esarhaddon, they intermixed with the Jews who were left behind. The northern kingdom was exiled, intermixed with people from Assyria. But they still held on to some kind of Yahweh worship. And so they came and they said, let us build with you. We worship your God among all of our other gods. But, verse three, chapter 4, verse 3, Zerubbabel Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them and frustrated their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they started, back then, they started building the temple foundation. They started building the temple. But their efforts were frustrated. The Samaritans had discouraged them from doing it, threatened them. And so they gave up until the second year of Darius. But look at the end of chapter 4. Verse 24, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak rose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. So 14 years ago or so the work on the temple had ceased until the second year of King Darius when Haggai and Zechariah challenged them to rebuild it and then supported them in that work. That is where even entering into our story a little bit filling in some of the white spaces for you. You can go back to the book of Haggai now. As I said, verse 1 is kind of an introduction, uh, but we want, to read the, we want to read the entire text just of chapter 1 here of Haggai. So let's read chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. 
You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. So verse 1 is a bit of an introduction into the passage. We've already kind of oriented ourselves to King Darius, who he is, the second year, the time that this is happening. But there also is the matter of Haggai, Zerubbabel, and also Joshua. But in the second year of the reign of Darius, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. This phrase, the word of the Lord came, it's a very common phrase throughout the prophets. The people would have recognized it as divine revelation coming to the prophet, either in audible words or a visitation, a personal visitation of Yahweh, whereby he speaks to the prophet. The people would have recognized this as the words of God. And that little phrase, by the hand of, it's translated as some, just as through, indicating that Haggai was the conduit by which Yahweh was delivering his message. Haggai was the conduit or the agent delivering the message. And if there's any question about it, it says Haggai is described as the prophet. And he actually breaks a several decades long silence. The last prophet to be active was Ezekiel during the exiles to the remnants in Babylon. Haggai is the first prophetic activity to those who returned from the exile. And then there's the following two people that Haggai is addressing the message to. He's not addressing it to the people directly. He says this is to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. But, being on the first day of the month, there was a new moon festival on every first day of the month, and so it is likely that Haggai is delivering this to all the people who are there at the Temple Mound. They have the altar that they're making sacrifices to appropriately. But all the people are probably gathered there as Haggai is standing, delivering this message to Zerubbabel and Joshua in the hearing of all the people. Zerubbabel, he was... A Jew, his name likely comes from an Akkadian word meaning seed of Babylon. But he comes from the lineage of David. He is mentioned in three verses in the New Testament in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, 12 and 13 and Luke 3, 27. He was the grandson of Jehoiakim who was last seen in the text living out his days in exile in Babylon as the last and only surviving Davidic king. And so such a connection to the line of David may have sparked messianic hopes in the people for the returned exiles that maybe their nation one day could be reconstituted and have a king. Zerubbabel's presence there gives the Jews hope that there is one day going to be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne again as king. He's not king now, right now he's just governor, but it would give all of them hope. Then there's Joshua was one of the sons of Jehozadak, the high priest installed in Jerusalem. Jehozadak was a son of Sariah, who was the chief priest killed by Nebuchadnezzar after the destruction of the temple. So we see the direct connection between people who came back and the people who were there before, a continuity of 
the lineage. Joshua is also most likely related to Ezra the scribe uh, that we read from earlier. But Joshua is the current high priest, and the high priest in post-exilic times, he had more prominence than he did when there was a king there. One source says, and I quote, when the house of David was no longer at the head of the nation, the high priest became the uncontested leader of the Jewish commonwealth in both civil and religious areas, end quote. And you can kind of see that even as you enter into the New Testament and you see the political situation, the high priest resides over the Sanhedrin and over the Jewish leaders. So going back all the way to here, the high priest had much more prominence than when there was a king on the throne. So we see that here, as Haggai addresses the co-leaders of the remnant, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest, they're addressed because they're the ones who are leading the people. And he's calling them also to lead by example. And that brings us to the text that we're going to cover today and next week. All of chapter 1 I have entitled, Set Your Heart Upon Yahweh of Hosts. Set Your Heart Upon Yahweh of Hosts. And we'll look at this in two parts. I have three parts to the outline, but we'll only cover the first point with the time we have today. So three-point outline. Number one, assess your priorities. Assess your priorities. Point number two, consider your trials. And point number three, fear your God. Assess your priorities. Consider your trials. Fear your God. But let's get into that first point. Assess your priorities. Look at verse 2. Haggai comes and is declaring a message from Yahweh, and Yahweh says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts. This is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, followed by a noun that generally refers to armies, but here it's in the plural form. And Bavink, in his systematic theology, has a lengthy discussion on the meaning of this name. And our English translation weeds out some of his bad, some of the bad interpretations of this. But some people have argued that this refers to God as a God of war. But Bavink has a clear argument against that and orients us to what this refers to, what this name indicates about Yahweh. But the question is, does hosts refer to the stars of heaven, to the angels, to the hosts of the armies of Israel, or even to all the powers and the elements of the cosmos. Bavink notes that the armies of Israel and the stars, they're never referred to as hosts in this plural form. So he rules those two things out. And Bavink goes on to lay out his argument for the oldest interpretation of hosts being angels. The angels of heaven. And he says this is perfectly fitting because it really doesn't have any warlike or martial character. But everywhere expresses the glory of God as the King. And he has a whole bunch of cross-references for that. And I would just add to that list of cross-references all these uses in Haggai. There's nothing martial about this book, nothing about God's war, but all about His glory. John Hartley notes that this plural form means either Yahweh the mightiest warrior or Yahweh the all-powerful King. And he goes on to say, that such a term affirms Yahweh's universal rulership, which encompasses every army or force, heavenly, cosmic, and earthly. And Hartley continues and he says, when captured in all of its thrust, Yahweh Savaoth, that's this word, Yahweh of hosts, is a most exalted title. It is definitely associated with Yahweh's kingship, as Isaiah 6.5 and Psalm 84 talk about. He goes on and he says, On a festive day before a triumphal procession entered the temple court, the chorus sang, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be filled up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts is the King of glory. That's Psalm 24, 9. And that text clearly shows Yahweh of hosts conveyed as the, the, in this concept of glorious King. And while the title does have military overtones, it points directly to Yahweh's rulership over the entire universe. He continues to rule from His throne. And Bavink 
in summarizing, he says, throughout the Scriptures, Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh of hosts, is the solemn royal name of God, full of majesty and glory. The name Elohim denotes God as creator and sustainer of all things. El Shaddai represents Him as the mighty one who makes nature subservient to grace. Yahweh describes Him as the one who is. And Yahweh Sabaoth characterizes Him as king in the fullness of His glory who, surrounded by the regiment hosts of angels, governs throughout the world as the Almighty. And in His temple, He receives the honor and acclamation of all of His creatures. End quote. So the significance of this name. Yahweh introduces Himself by this name to Zerubbabel and Joshua as the glorious King of the universe. The King of the universe declares this, thus you better pay attention. The one who rules all is speaking. But that's not the extent of the significance. Yahweh introduces Himself this way because He is the Almighty who sits in His temple to receive all honor and glory. And while He sits enthroned in heaven to receive all honor and glory and praise, His earthly temple that's supposed to manifest His glory On the earth, it lays in ruins while the people busy themselves with their own households. Is that how the High King of Heaven should be treated? With neglect and contempt? So the High King of Heaven speaks and you better pay attention. Does this high view of God factor into your thinking, into your decision making, into your priorities? Do you see Him as the High King of Heaven that you have the privilege of serving? Or do you tend to neglect Him and treat Him with contempt? Yahweh of hosts then goes on to inform Zerubbabel and Joshua, possibly, as I said, right there as they're having services on this New Moon Festival day, right there in front of all the people, they're hearing Haggai deliver this message, And he says, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. So this reads a bit like an indictment in a courtroom. Haggai stands speaking for Yahweh and he's speaking to the leaders, indicting the people. This people, he doesn't say my people, he says this people say, and there's a couple things that are significant about how they phrase it. Yahweh is quoting what the people say. And what the people say is worded in such a way so as to remove themselves personally from the statement. There's no subjects mentioned there to perform the action. The two verbs are both infinitives, which means they're atemporal, apersonal, not indicating time or person, subject who's supposed to be doing this. And the verb to build is in the nifal uh, tense meaning it removes any causative notion. The way the people word this removes any notion of responsibility on their part. They say there just isn't enough time. Now isn't the right time, they kept saying. It's the difference between when you ask Someone about you know, their habit of Bible reading and prayer, and they say, you know what, I, just, I haven't made time for that. That person is taking responsibility. That person recognizes it is their responsibility to prioritize those things. And then there's the person who says, yeah, there's just not enough time in the day to do that. You see the difference? It's obvious. The second person isn't taking any responsibility for what is clearly their responsibility. Yahweh sends Haggai to deliver this message before all the people to indict the people saying, this people. They have the audacity to say the appointed time has not come to build Yahweh's house. And one commentator, Taylor and Clendon, and say in their commentary that And I quote, the people of Haggai's community did not question whether the temple should at some point in the future be rebuilt. Only on that there is a 
That there's a general census. What they did challenge was that a time to do so had already arrived. And many commentators, they discuss all the different reasons why the people didn't think that it was yet time to build Yahweh's house. Those same commentators, Taylor, they says, and I quote, they may have even been theological reasons for the hesitancy of the people. Ezekiel had described a glorious temple that would come as a result of divine initiative in Ezekiel 40-48, to but to attempt to bring about such a temple apart from a clear word from the Lord indicating that this was something that in fact should be done could be viewed as presumption or ill-advised, perhaps even as a betrayal of the eschatological hope. Ezekiel prophesied to them, and so they're arguing, some commentators are arguing, well, maybe they thought that they wanted to wait until this great glorious temple that Ezekiel prophesied could be built. And that if they tried to build this less glorious one, then that would be a betrayal. Some, they give the people the benefit of the doubt. They thought they were being faithful by waiting for Yahweh to send a prophet and the resources to build the temple described in Ezekiel. Some argue that the people might have thought such a task should be undertaken by the king, even a secular king as Cyrus. Because Cyrus, he started the project, sent them off, told them he'd fund it. But now Cyrus was gone. He was dead. They're waiting for the new king, King Darius, to issue a decree and send them money to buy all the materials and sanction the work. Maybe... They're still fearful, discouraged from the surrounding peoples who had frustrated their work decades ago. They're still discouraged about that, saying now is not the right time. They're still going to be against us. However, Mark Boda, another commentator, proposes that the reason the people thought it was not time to build was purely economical and financial reasons due to the hardships that they were enduring at the time, which is obvious in the text. And he argues that this is the primary reason simply because that's what the text talks about. And I tend to agree with him on that issue, on the economical argument, because simply because it's addressed in the text. And I think the people were making excuses like this. There just wasn't enough time to build Yahweh's house. But it's also understandable when you consider the times that they were living in. The people weren't being lazy. Look at it. Their, their ways were being frustrated. They didn't know it was God who was frustrating their ways. But verse 6, he says, You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And when he earns his wages, he does so to put them into a bag with holes. And then he says later, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. He called later in verse 11, I have called for a drought on the land, the hills and the grain and the new wine and the oil. So their, ways, their way of life had been drastically frustrated, dramatically frustrated. They worked very hard, but little came in the harvest. They had enough to eat, but there was never enough to fill their stomachs. There was enough to drink, but never enough to satisfy. They had just enough clothes to technically be clothed, but... They were still cold. And on top of that, because of the taxation policies of the new administration of Darius, inflation was through the roof. So even those who were paid in coinage rather than trying to live off the land themselves, like putting coins into a bag that had holes. It was gone before you knew it. And so it's understandable for the people of that day to say, I'm not sure this is a good time. I mean, they're already working their tails off, right? Just trying to feed their families, work the land, barely scraping by. The little spare time they have, are they supposed to go out and cut stone, cut trees down and bring them and build the temple? I mean, Solomon conscripted people. He, it was a huge ordeal to get all the resources to build the temple. Solomon had to conscript people into service to do that. So it was a massive amount of work that they were looking at. They're supposed to do all of this on top of everything else they're doing? I mean, not to mention the cost. Building projects are so expensive. All of these things would be running through the people's mind. And so it's understandable that the people would think, now isn't the time to build Yahweh's house. But then... 
Yahweh has Haggai bring the evidence of the indictment in verse 4 with a rhetorical question that is meant to cut through the sentimentality of the rough times and any excuses the people had justified their actions with to cut through any of the compassion that we might feel for the people. Look at verse 4. Yahweh asks this rhetorical question. Is it a time? Noting back to the time in the first paragraph or the first sentence. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The one commentator says by means of this interrogative, this question, this rhetorical question, the prophet hints at the indignation he feels towards the callous display of these people, their selfish interests. Notes that the question may also invite the listener or the readers to draw a conclusion similar to that of the prophet on this matter. When he asked this question, he asked it in such a way that would make everyone understand the point. Everyone understand that they had had the wrong priorities. Haggai's point is that it is repulsive to suggest, as some of them had, that it is not yet time to rebuild the temple, while at the same time, they're building their houses. This would have pierced the hearts of everyone standing there before the temple on that day for worship. If there was an appointed time, if there was enough to build all of their houses, shouldn't the house of the King of Heaven be included in all of that? I mean, it wasn't that the people didn't want to do the work. They had built their own homes. They were just more concerned for their own security and the comfort than God's glory represented in the temple. The people's statement, the time has not come to rebuild the house of Yahweh, had intentionally removed any responsibility from them. They wanted to stay out of the scope of being the subjects responsible to tackle that project. But here, Yahweh uses the second person plural pronoun three times to emphasize that they are the responsible ones. Look at verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? He wants to make sure you are in the scope of this. But in reality, it gets a little worse as we look at the text. Dwell is a verb that means to sit or remain. One... uh, Lexicographer says the verb can also connote duration of time at a spot and is often translated remain, stay, linger, abide. By extension, the verb takes on the meaning to dwell in a place, emphasizing the stability and duration of residence. This verb, so stability of residence, the homes are finished, in conjunction with this verb, in connection with the description of the paneled houses, means that their homes are already done. They are, relatively speaking, completed and livable. So the people are saying their houses, they're completed, they're livable, and they're still saying, now's not a good time to build Yahweh's house. Paneled, it's a verb in the Hebrew, and it just means to cover. And it's debated as to whether this means just covering the house with a roof, or covering the inside walls with paneling. Fancy paneling. But wood-paneled houses were generally only had by the royalty. And these people, they seem to be in very difficult economic times. And I find it hard to believe a bunch of these economically distraught people had paneled houses. It is possible, but I tend to think it refers to the roof indicating that these houses are done, they're livable, They're completed. And I think that's the point. And if it's a reference to paneled houses, it just makes the point a little bit stronger. That the people, their houses were done and they were even decorating them before they were trying to build Yahweh's house. The point is, Yahweh stands speaking this in front of the people to Zerubbabel and Joshua saying, this people says the time has not come to build Yahweh's house while they dwell in finished homes. And it's while they dwell in finished homes that they say this. It's not time to build Yahweh's house. Now the 
Temple Mound. It was elevated up above Jerusalem. If you're standing on it where they would have been as they were sacrificing the people as they stood facing the altar and the person speaking, the backdrop would have been Jerusalem. Elevated, they'd be overlooking Jerusalem. And so as they were standing there, the backdrop of all this, they'd be looking at the ruins of Yahweh's house with all of their houses in view. Ruins is a noun that refers to dryness like the desert or waste referring to something desolate. Jerusalem is referred to with this word in Jeremiah after the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the significance of this is that Yahweh blessed the people by bringing them back to their homeland. And after 15 years of the exiles being back in Jerusalem, the temple still looks like it did after it was destroyed. After Jerusalem was empty and desolate, empty of people, no life, The point is, the people had no regard for Yahweh's house, even though they dwelt in their covered and completed houses. And as I mentioned, as Haggai is giving the people Yahweh's message, they're standing before the ruins, they're looking at the ruins with their houses in the backdrop. Yahweh sends to all these people who have finished their homes, He indicts them by asking this rhetorical question, is it still not time to build my house even when you have completed all of these. All yours are done. Look at the ruin of my house right here in front of you. Is it still not time to build my house? And it begs the question, when is it going to be time? If not now, when? Look at the ruins of my house. You can see all of yours in view. Tell me where your priorities lie. Tell me where your loyalties lie. Is there no time to build houses? Well, look at yours. Is it an economically hard time? Yes, but you managed to build yours. No, the issue is you don't care about the high king of heaven. You only care for your own interests. Kyle and Dalich in their commentary, they say this, and I quote, with this question, The prophet cuts off all excuse on the ground that the circumstance of the times and the oppression under which they suffered did not permit the rebuilding of the temple. If they themselves lived comfortably in wainscoted houses, he takes the view of paneled houses, their civil and political conditions could not be so oppressive that they could find in that a sufficient excuse for neglecting to build the temple. So the times were hard, But that was no excuse for not building the temple. And their finished homes, they stand as evidence in this indictment. They still have more on their homes that they want to do. They're done. It's still not time to build Yahweh's house because they still have more they want to accomplish first. Look down at verse 9. This gives us some insight into this. Yahweh is telling them, you looked for much, behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own. While each of you busies himself, it's an indictment against every man of Jerusalem. It's the plural you, y'all, y'all busy yourselves. And in the singular word for amen, rendering it you all busy yourselves, each man. They were corporately and individually guilty. There wasn't a lone man there trying to get the temple built. Everyone there was guilty. And the word for busies there is the verb to run. And it's a participle indicating continual habitual action again taylor and clendon and say it well when they say and i quote the lord registers the complaint that the people are busy running after their own needs when they should instead be busy attending to the lord's desires when it came to their own interests they exerted a flurry of activity but when it came to the lord's interest 
they would not lift a finger. Furthermore, their selfish pursuits are pictured not as a single instance of failure, but a continual ongoing habit or way of life. End quote. So the people, they had busied themselves over and over and over with the things of their own house. This was their habit of life. But this isn't just about the house as in the physical structure. Lewis Goldberg notes that the word house most often refers to a physical structure, but it can also include all that's within the house, such as the the wife, male slaves, female slaves, kids, animals, etc. The Jews, their houses were done and they continued to busy themselves with household matters, taking care of the good things that God had given them. That's good, right? Taking care of the good things that God has given us. I mean, they were probably concerned that the kids be educated right and well, well well-fed, well-clothed, making sure they had a roof over their head. I mean, biblically, we're supposed to do all of those things, right? Yes, but Yahweh, as the high king of heaven, declares that it cannot be to your neglect of serving Him. It cannot be our habit of life that we attend only to our own personal interests. That we prioritize all of the good things that God has given us to the neglect of Him. And so what do we do with this? Well, go back to verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Second use of Yahweh of hosts. We are to think of this the High King of Heaven, the glorious King who sits on His throne commanding us this, consider your ways. Consider, it's an imperative. He's commanding us. And in the Hebrew, it's literally, set your heart. Set your heart upon your ways. Think deeply about them. Give careful thought to your ways. And one commentator notes that Having it written like this, this expression is a negative one and it suggests that their paths and their ways, they have deviated from behavior characterized by integrity and obedience. On your ways refers to a pattern of life, pattern of behaviors, the way that you operate and the pattern of your life. Yahweh of hosts calls us to consider our ways. He calls on the people to consider their behavior patterns in light of who He is, the High King of Heaven. He commands them to think deeply about who He is and how they have patterned their lives. And it's obvious as they're standing there looking at the ruins behind them that they have not been patterning their lives off of the first commandment to put God first. Instead, they broke the second commandment. They didn't set up a physical idol. Instead, they built all of their homes, putting themselves first, prioritizing what they wanted over the obviously righteous thing to do in building Yahweh's house. And as we turn to some application, who among us is not guilty of prioritizing our own interests above God's kingdom? This is why this text is so fitting for us Not only today, but every day. But today, the Lord has us going through it. Reminding us to assess our priorities. This pattern, it continued even into Jesus' day. He said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things were they talking about then? Well, they were anxious Chasing after things, food, sustenance, clothing, shelter. It's a prevailing sin issue that we put our own interests, our own anxieties, the things we worry about, think about, they distract us from serving Him. It's a prevailing sin issue and it's particularly difficult because as we think about educating kids, providing for the family, clothing the kids, making sure our future is secure, safe in the home, 
all of the things pertaining to the household, all of these things we must steward well as God has commanded us and as he has given them, us them to steward. But because those things are good, we must be particularly careful because when those things become an idol, when those good things that we're commanded to steward well become an idol, our hearts are superb at justifying our neglect of gospel service in order to busy ourselves with them. We must all think about the priorities of our lives. How we spend our money, our time, our energy, in light of the fact that we As we sung about earlier, we have been bought with the blood of the High King of Heaven. And we cannot neglect our service to Him for the good things He has given us. So consider your ways. That's what the High King of Heaven commanded them to do, and that's what He commands us to do this morning. Consider your ways. Think deeply about your priorities. Have you busied yourself so much with the good things of your home, with your kids, with your family, the provisions that you have, so that you have no time to serve the Lord and engage in the evangelism and discipleship of the local church? Consider your ways. Think deeply about your priorities. There are so many specific applications that we could come up with from this text. And I challenge you to think about the specifics of your own life, how you need to adjust your priorities. And don't make excuses. Even if they're good things, don't make excuses. Consider your priorities. And while there are many specific applications that we could draw, I want to just give you a couple specific ways that you can prioritize God over yourself just with the time we have left the first thing that I would encourage you to do, to consider, to prioritize, is the Lord's Day. Sunday isn't just another day in the weekend where we come to church. We have off work, so we come to church on Sundays. Sunday is all the way back to, as the saints described it in the first century, it is the Lord's Day. The day that they gathered, they set aside, they sanctified to worship the Lord. Beyond that, going all the way back to Genesis and the creation of the world, God declared a one day in seven rest. A day set aside for the rest of the soul. Set aside for the worship of Yahweh. God gave us six days to do our work and one to set aside to worship Him. If you are too busy with your household, your family, or kids, whatever it might be, that you can't make it to the Lord's day to worship, you need to adjust your priorities. If there's one resolution you make this year, I would commend that you prioritize the Lord's day above everything else. It isn't just another day for you to do whatever you want and you just happen to want to go to church on Sundays most of the time. You have the privilege of coming to worship the High King of Heaven and to serve Him. Don't neglect that for something else mundane. And in comparison to worshiping Yahweh, everything is mundane. If you had the privilege to be invited to heaven for a couple hours each week to worship God, would you consider doing anything else? That's how we should treat the Lord's day. Would it matter what else you had going on? And there are legitimate reasons to miss church, but I don't want to put a thousand qualifications or exceptions on there because then it just waters it down. But what it comes down to is your desire. Do you want to be here every Sunday like you would want to go to heaven each week? Would you do whatever you had to to make that happen? Look at Sunday in light of it being your personal privilege to come and worship the High King of Heaven and treat Him with the honor He deserves. Consider your priorities and the practice of your life in light of the Yahweh of hosts, the High King of Heaven. Not to mention that this is the 
primary means of God's grace by which He is going to sanctify you and make you more like Christ. And I would also commend to you that you prioritize the Lord's day and the whole day, not just part of it. The whole day is the Lord's day that we're called to set aside and sanctify. Don't busy yourself with the things at home on the Sunday afternoons and be too concerned about your own comforts that you can't come back, especially when we do communion once a month. Don't make excuses because when you actually think about those excuses and you verbalize them out loud, they sound quite ridiculous. Sorry, Jesus, I can't make it to communion. I got my spot all warm on the couch. Don't want to get it. It's going to get cold. Sorry, Jesus, I can't come to celebrate you stepping off of your throne, setting aside kingly privileges and dying for me. I can't come celebrate that. I have too much homework to do. Sorry, Jesus, it's been a really long week. I'm really tired. Got to get good rest. Got to stay healthy so I can keep my job and feed my kids. Sorry, Jesus, do you, do you know how bad these kids will be tomorrow if I keep them up again? They already missed morning nap for church. Do you know how bad they're going to be? And the list could go on. And we can all sympathize with the hardships of life. Just like the people in Jerusalem. We can sympathize, but Jesus calls you out to assemble on the Lord's day and set it apart from everything else. Because He is the King who suffered and died for you. And so let us resolve this year not to make excuses for why we can't Make it to church on the Lord's day. Morning and evening, when there's evening church. But instead, let the Lord's day be the reason that you have to say no to everything else. And I could go on with how we need to align our priorities, but for the sake of not heaping up burdens too heavy to bear, I'll just give one more. And I'll keep it short and summarize it by asking you to think deeply about your Priority of Christian disciplines. Scripture reading, Scripture memorization, and prayer. You must at least resolve not to use the excuse that there just isn't enough time in the day. At least take responsibility. 95% of the time when we don't do it, it's because we are neglecting this as a priority. We here, we've tried to make the reading portion as easy for you as possible. We've come up with a plan for you. We, many of us here do it together. It's just a tool. You don't have to do it, but we're just trying to encourage you to do this because the Word of God is the milk, First Peter chapter 2, by which you're going to grow up into Christ. Don't neglect that. So resolve to find a plan to stick to Resolve to pray for your family, your immediate family, those in need of salvation, and your church family here at Grace. And if you don't know what to pray, just look at the prayers that Paul prays in Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians. They're chocked full of Paul's prayers for those churches. Just pray those prayers for your family and for fellow church members. But don't stop there. We all need to think about our habit of life and not just make it a once a year thing. We need to regularly assess our priorities and see if they align with God's Word. We need to think about our other priorities, not just the two specific applications I mentioned, but think deeply upon your habit of life and everybody's going to be different. Think about your habit of life and how you need to realign your priorities to reflect who God is. Let's pray. Our glorious and magnificent King that we have the privilege of calling Father, that You sent Your only Son to die for us in our place, that we might escape Your wrath that there is now no condemnation for us, that our motivation for realigning all of our priorities is because we love You, 
because you died for us. It's because you are the King of heaven who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And I just pray that you convict us where we need to be convicted of, where our priorities are misaligned, the things that we need to repent of, things that we need to make a priority of doing. Lord, we ask for Your grace in this. We ask that this not be just today that we think about this, but we continue to think about it throughout the year. But I pray, Lord, that we would all just have such a high view of You, such a low view of ourselves, that we want to do all we can to glorify You. I pray that our lives do not reflect the ruins of the temple. If someone was to look at our priorities and religious matters, it'd look like ruins. But that we would prioritize spiritual matters for Your glory and for our good. Amen.